Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Sometimes people ask me, as a pastor, how do you do sermons? Um, and I tell them that we do expository sermons, which is a fancy way of saying we go through verse by verse. Um, there is a lot I enjoy. In fact, as we get close to the end of a book, I, I almost have this emotional... Anybody read a lot of books? Uh, raise your hand, you're a reader. You get to the end of a book, how many of you get that weird emotional, I don't want it to end. I want the story to just keep happening. I want to live in this world that I'm in, and now it's over. So you're really excited about if they've got sequels or if they've got if it's a trilogy or whatever. Um, but then once it's over, I mean, it's over. When I got to the end of Harry Potter, I was like, Please write more. But, but anyway, so just that feeling I get when we get towards the end of a book, uh, of, I, I get, we get attached. So I've re I really enjoy going through a book of the Bible and us uh, going over scriptures. One of the great things about that is, is that I can say we're not leaving any stones unturned. Uh, we're looking at every verse and so I think that is really helpful, and I think that's really good. That's why we do it. But there is another side to the coin. And the other side of the coin is, is that you have to preach on things that you don't want to preach on. So we've had some fun stuff in the book of Mark. So we had, we had hell and then divorce back to back. Remember that? That was super exciting. Uh, we've had several really fun sermons along the way. This is going to be one of those sermons that I'm just telling you right up front, uh, it's kind of like Brussels sprouts. Um, it's Brussels sprouts to me personally. Now, some people will be like, I don't know what you're talking about. But, but to me personally, this, and Brussels sprouts are good for you, right? Especially if you bake them with Parmesan cheese and all the, but okay, maybe. This is a Brussels sprout sermon. It is good for us. And I am asking you to pray along with me as I, I am trying to be faithful to the text as best I know how without being faithful to my opinions. Lord, help me. Okay, so let's read this text of Scripture and then let's talk about it. And, uh, and hopefully, well, by God's grace, we will get some light that will help us. We're going to read just verse 13 to verse 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, we thank you again that we have the privilege of gathering together, that we live in a country where it is completely free to do what we're doing. 
I pray, God, that we would rejoice in that. and We would acknowledge your good grace and governance over the governments of this world. Lord, we rejoice that we get to hear the Word of God and that the Holy Spirit is faithful to teach us. And we ask this morning that you would give us all ears to hear and that you would help us bypass opinion, bypass strong emotion. And Lord, let us hear what you are saying through the Word of God. Help me to say the right things and leave out the opinions. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in the section of Scripture where, again, we're really just 24 hours removed from him overturning the tables in the temple the day before. So Jesus is in the temple, and through over the next couple weeks, you are going to see, and it's almost like a cartoon or a video game in my mind, where Jesus is progressing through the levels of challenges. And this is challenge number one, is the Pharisees and the Herodians. Next week, the next boss that he's going to have to face, everybody knows video games, right? The next boss he's going to face is going to be the Sadducees. And then he's going to deal with the scribes. So it is, it's almost, in one sense, it's comical because um, verse 13 tells us, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees. So whoever is in charge is sending opponents and opposition to Jesus. They are trying to stop him. He came in with fanfare and Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's already overturned tables and said, you have made this place a den of thieves and robbers. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. He's, he's called them hypocrites. He's called them all kinds of stuff. If you go into the book of Matthew in particular, you read this section, and Jesus is letting people have it in the teaching. He is coming to an end. He's coming to an appointment with the cross. And this is the first real testing he gets in the temple. Here's something for us to really look at. We, we hear about Pharisees. I mean, gosh, I've been hearing about Pharisees since I was a kid. Just automatically assume if it's the word Pharisee, it's bad. And 90% of the time it is. There are some good Pharisees that actually become Christians later. All a Pharisee is is a really, really religious, zealous leader. We would probably equate them today with fundamentalists, um, but not all fundamentalists are bad. In many regards, I'm a fundamentalist. Um, but the Pharisees, Jesus tells us, he uses words like hypocrites, snakes, blind guides, sons of hell, and whitewashed sepulchers, which is a fancy way of saying you are a spiritual graveyard. You have a pretty facade, but inside you are filled with dead men's bones. Jesus did not mince any words dealing with Pharisees. In fact, most of Jesus' criticisms are not directed at regular folk. They're directed at religious leaders that are leading people astray, the Pharisees were probably the most popular dominant denomination of the Jewish world. So we've heard about them a lot. What you've not heard about a lot is the Herodians. 
They're mentioned three times in the Bible, two times in Mark and the other time in Matthew. We know very little about them other than their name helps explain they were kind uh, they were sycophants to Herod. They were followers of the Herodian dynasty. They were super duper loyal to Herod. They were the Karens that report you to the boss. Okay? Is that a, they, Herodians were people who uh, loved to mark your post or flag it as inflammatory uh, because they were so loyal to the Herodi or to the Herod's, Herod's dynasty. They were by proxy loyal to Rome, so they were not a very liked group. In fact, the Pharisees despise the Herodians, hate them. But if you've ever heard the old phrase. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other, but they hate Jesus more. Jesus is representing a complete disruption to their social order, and he has to be stopped. So that makes for strange bedfellows. The Herodians and the Pharisees have teamed up together. But this is not, this is a very clever thing that they're doing. It's very clever what they're doing. Look at um, verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. I want you to hear the insincere venom dripping off of their tongues when they say this. We know that you are true. We do not care about anyone's opinion. Meaning, not that Jesus doesn't care. If you read the King James, it actually makes it sound like he doesn't care. What, what he doesn't care about is he's not swayed by what people think. So they're, they're buttering him up. They're flattering him. They're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They do not believe that for one single second. Okay? But they're saying it now. Because they're leading him into a trap. In fact, we know that because it says they're here to trap him in his talk. And that word trap in the Greek is really interesting because it doesn't mean set a trap. It means aggressively pursue like you are hunting an animal. So they are actively, they are coming after him. Here's their trap. Here's their question. Is it lawful? meaning Mosaic lawful, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, on the surface, that is just a yes or no question. But that yes or no question goes really deep because there were Jewish zealots that were like militias that did fight against, in little skirmishes, they fought against the Roman government, um, and th they always wound up losing. If you study the Maccabean Revolt, there's, there's a real history here. There's a real powder keg type of environment. It's tense, and the zealots did not pay taxes, which is what got them in trouble from the Romans. The, zealot, the zealots, a, a group, they refused to do it. So they were always like living like outlaws in the Wild West. It's like Jesse James running from the U.S. Marshals 
uh, and then striking out in bank robberies. That's kind of what the zealots were like. It's hard not to admire them. I'm just going to tell you that right off the bat. They're kind of a neat group, but they're also wrong. Okay? Um, just like people idolize Jesse James. I mean, he's kind of cool, right? It's kind of, and it's wrong. He was, he was hurting people and robbing banks. So the zealots, that's what's going on with them. The Pharisees would submit to pay the taxes, but they made it very clear that they didn't like it and that it was, it was idolatrous to do so, which we're going to talk about a little bit further. So this question is, is, is a little deeper because of the way that people felt about the Roman oppression. The taxes... Uh, started about 24 years or 26 years ago. Jesus, assuming him to be age 33, it happened in 86, happened somewhere in there, and it's been going on for a couple decades. So it's, it's a new but not new experience for the Jewish people. So this question is relevant. It's on people's minds. There's people alive today in the city that have a memory of not paying the tax. And this was actually a tribute or a poll tax, meaning you have to take a census, and when you take the census, you pay the tax. The tax was a denarius, which you, we hear that word in here. A denarius was a single day's wage. Now, if I just can interject, this is my opinion. I'm just I'm telling you up front, this is my opinion. I would love for my tax to be a single day's wage. Okay, just, that's just all. I'll just throw that out there, that's, and then I'll let me back up. Okay, but that's what it was. Now, they had lots of other taxes. That There were taxes all over the place. So this particular tax, though, was onerous in the eyes of the Jews because it's a, an oppressor. But there's another reason that it's ugly. Daryl, can you put that picture up on the screen. I have a picture uh, if the technical difficulties don't get us. So this is a picture of what we believe the coin looks like. You may be thinking, wow, that doesn't really mean anything. But it's important to understand what was on this coin. Because Jesus is going to answer and say, whose image is on this thing? And this is an actual, and here's neat side, side information. Because of this verse, these coins have become one of the most sought-after coins in the world. Can, it really, it's kind of neat. You can go online and buy them, and they are not cheap, because I thought that would be a really cool thing to have in my office. But uh, it's not going to happen. Um, so anyway, the, the front, we believe the emperor... The, the Caesar at this time was Caesar Tiberius. He would have been the third Caesar after the first, Julius Caesar, the first Roman Caesar, and then his son, uh, Octavius, which we call Augustus, uh, which is a divine title in the imperial cult. And then on this coin, let me read uh, what we think is on that coin. But, well, not what we think. If this is the coin, which we're almost positive it is, what you're seeing uh, around the edge is an inscription that says, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine 
Augustus. On the back of the coin, it says Pontifex Maxim, which means head priest of Rome. The reason this coin was a big deal is it wasn't just money. It symbolized to the Jews idolatry. Because this image on the outside of the coin, it is saying he is the son of the divine Augustus. So Rome had moved into this weird period of, of imperial cult worship of the emperor, of the Caesars. And they viewed him as a like a, a deity. So the Jews, obviously, the Lord our God is one. No other gods we have before us. It's in the Ten Commandments. They did not like this idea of paying the, paying the tax because that's the image that they were paying. So the clever, so we're going to go back to the scripture. I just wanted you to see that. You can Google this. There's tons of articles online about this. There's all kinds of interesting facts. So uh, I'm not going to go down all those rabbit trails. But what if you go back to what they're actually asking, um, they're asking Jesus to answer an impossible question. Because if he, or they think it's impossible, if he answers the question, no, you should denounce Rome, side with the zealots, get a thumbs up from the Pharisees, the Herodians are there for that very purpose so that they can run straight to Herod and thereby Rome and get Jesus killed. That's the idea. The Pharisees are scared to do it themselves because the crowd loves Jesus. There's plenty of people in this crowd that have stories of the time he cast out demons, fed the 5,000, or they themselves have been healed in his ministry. They love Jesus. So they bring the Herodians. It's very, very clever, very tricky. We'll bring these guys, and we'll get him to answer a question and if he denounces Rome, then they will go back to Rome and he will be dead. And problem solved. But if he says, no, you should pay the tax, now the people who hate paying the taxes will view Jesus like he's kind of a Herodian. Do you see the dilemma? This is the trap. This is a legitimate verbal trap. But they, are, they think they've got him. Which they clearly don't. But let's talk about the genius of Jesus. Look at what he says. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy. He knows the flattery is fake. He knows the alliance between... Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians is illegitimate, and it's only for a, it's a trap. He knows that, and he says, which I can only assume had a little exasperation in it. Why put me to the test? Why? Why are you doing this? He already knows. 
bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. Important to note, nobody reached into their pocket and got one. They had to go to the crowd and find one. Because most Jews aren't going to carry that coin because of the idolatry associated with it. But there were people that did have it. Whose likeness and inscription is this? So Jesus is saying, whose face is on this coin, and what is this inscription? And they said, Caesar's. They know the answer. They know the answer immediately. Here's the genius answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is recognizing something that the rest of the New Testament does talk to us about. He's recognizing that Rome has a right as a government that has overthrown the sovereignty of Jerusalem and Israel, and yet simultaneously they brought peace to the whole known world called the Pax Romana and the Roman roads. And they brought aqueducts into the areas that brought fresh water in. They introduced science and technology that other places didn't have. If, if this had not happened, it's really weird to think about that a conquering, barbaric, in one sense, uh, regime, Rome, that conquered and did so by rape and murder to force people to submit. But in that aftermath, those communities are now connected in ways that they never would have been before. In fact, I remember in Bible college having to write a paper on the reality of the of the Roman roads. They built roads throughout all of the Roman Empire. You remember be, being taught in history class, all roads lead to Rome? You remember that? The reason for that is, is that they built the roads from Rome out into the empire, and those roads made it possible for quick and easy travel so that the apostles, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, have Roman roads to spread the gospel in a way that they would not have been able to do 500 years prior. It's just one thing to throw out. Jesus is saying, he is implicitly saying, by saying, give to Caesar the guy on this coin, and it was understood that if an emperor minted the coin, he is the owner of that coin, he's the sovereign over that empire, and therefore we as provincial governments underneath of him owe him a tribute tax, give to him what is due him. So he is acknowledging the right of obeying a governing authority. In this case, an odious governing authority. This is the Brussels sprout part of my sermon. So, let me just tell you that 
We're going to talk about obeying the government, and then we're going to come back to Jesus, okay? But Jesus here, he says it, give to Caesar with this filthy inscription that says he's the son of the divine Augustus. Give to him what is due him. In other words, pay this tax. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Let every person, this is Paul, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. At this point, about 40 years after this moment in the temple, the Roman government is worse than Jesus' day. And they're on the verge, and in some places already engaged, in massive persecution. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I want you just to think, then, that governments have been instituted by God. And here's the purpose. Let's keep reading. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. At least they're not supposed to be. Okay, that's in my opinion. Just, they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, the government authority, the magistrate, whoever it is, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, your mind and your heart. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So, the way that I would look at this is if you can picture God at the top and underneath of him like a big umbrella, underneath of him God institutes governments all over the world, not just ours. He institutes governments all over the world. And these governments are, according to this, ministers of God to, in a civil sense, keep cultures and societies from descending into chaos. Because without some kind of government structure, we do go into chaos. When we were in Haiti, some of you, I think, were there. One of the things that struck me was their government had collapsed and the UN was there. Because without that presence, people would start killing each other. They were killing each other anyway after that earthquake is when we were there. But 
but without a government presence of some kind, people descend into chaos. We complain a lot about authoritarian structures. I am the chiefest of sinners in this room. But without some of these structures, the chaos that would ensue, you would be begging for the corrupt government to come back. Now, what the Bible is telling us, what Romans 13 is telling us, is that God is over that authority. And then under that authority would be us. So even though he's talking about Caligula and Nero and other horrific leaders, people that lit up the Roman Colosseum with Christians crucified all the way around the arena, covered in pitch and lit on fire, submit to a government that represents corruption to that degree. <sighs> because they're ministers of God, but any time that this umbrella structure, God institutes the authority and we are to obey the authority because it's coming from God, Anytime that authority goes out from under that umbrella and says, here are some things that you are going to do that are directly in violation to this authority, at that point, no, you are not to obey the government. If they tell us we can't worship, if they tell you you must support certain causes that involve LGBTQ lifestyles or whatever it would be, that's the big thing that we live in, what we deal with right now, if we say no. Because God is the ultimate authority, and when I read this, I realize that these governments that are instituted by God as a common grace, that they have a responsibility under God. Part of the role of the church is to remind governments of that responsibility. Now that is another sermon, okay, that I am not going to try to do this morning. But the church is supposed to have a prophetic voice that calls the government to task to say, you have a responsibility to execute justice because you have been appointed by God to do so and you are not doing it. You have a responsibility that you are failing at. So that is another sermon and it gets a little gray because there are different interpretations. Just as a side note of where this gray area is, verse uh, 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So that means the American Revolutionary War was sin. Or does it? I don't think that it does mean that the Revolutionary War was sin. Any more than I think that the Civil War was sin. Okay, everybody can feel the heaviness of the thought, right? That There's a lot to think about in when is resistance 
to a government that is corrupt appropriate? I'm not going to claim that I have the answer. But I'm just going to tell you that historically throughout Christian thought, with these verses in mind, not trying to ignore them, but with these verses in mind, there were very godly men in the 1700s who said, we need our own nation because of the tyranny of that one that's subjecting us. So I'm not going to try to answer all those questions this morning. I'm just letting you know that there is a lot to take in. But what we can take in this morning for our Brussels sprouts in the sermon is that we are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Even knowing that my tax dollars and yours are wasted in some of the most egregious ways imaginable. Just unbelievable excess and waste. And that's just talking about bad stewardship, let alone going into programs that are diametrically opposed to a Christian worldview. And that was happening then too. Because the Roman Empire was doing the same thing. In fact, if there's one thing we know about governments and power, and it goes, Aristotle even talked about it before, before this even, but you know, Aristotle was like 200 years before Jesus. The idea is that if people are in power, the power goes to their head and it goes to their pocketbooks, it goes to their pleasures. People in power, once they've got it, they want to stay in power, and then they want to use the power to do what power does, which is, this is what I want, gimme, gimme, gimme. This is what I need, give me, gimme, gimme. And then you're going to pay for it, or you're going to let me do it, or you're, you're going to shut up because I'm in power. That is what power always does, and Thomas Jefferson said, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson who said that the power... Uh, corrupts ultimately, and ultimate power really ultimately corrupts everybody and everything it touches. So we know that. And yet God, in his word, is telling us he has put sinful people in charge. Part of his common grace uh, is, part of his common grace is to give us a government um, that keeps basically society moving forward. Okay. 1 Peter chapter 2 helps me a little bit here. So, in regard to the Civil War question, in regard to the Revolutionary War question, that is, those are big, big issues. But the Civil War was worth fighting to eliminate slavery. I know that's a very simple explanation. There was a lot going on in that war. But, but there was a reason that it happened. And the reason ultimately was a good thing, even though it was the bloodiest conflict in American history. But it was, there was a good result on the other end. The Revolutionary War was also a good thing. It's... It's complicated. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of things to discuss. Some things are not just, oh, it's easy. 
Let's just use some common sense. Well, some of some things are complex. This is, in my opinion, one of the complex issues is where our submission to government and our submission to God, we want to make sure that we aren't overbalanced in one way or the other. You can never be overbalanced in submission to God. But what I mean is, is where Christians draw the line in listening or not listening to the governing authority. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That first few words helps me a lot. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So it is appropriate for us to show honor to people who are in authority. It is, it's appropriate that you treat your boss at work with an appropriate level of deference. And your boss's boss gets probably more deference. The CEO gets more deference. The mayor of Huntington should be honored. The governor of West Virginia should be honored. The president of the United States should be honored and prayed for. Because Timothy tells us to pray for all those who are in authority. So, I struggle here a little bit. I am politically libertarian. I hate the government, okay? I don't trust them at all because of the aforementioned issue of power and corruption and all that. And yet, I am submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ who tells me to honor them, tells me to pray for them, tells me to pay my taxes, obey the speed limit. Can't believe it's 35 miles an hour through this particular section. It's utterly ridiculous. It's completely arbitrary that somebody came up with the number 35. Because I can drive 55 and everything's fine. We're 65. It's a funny example, but it is an example of what causes societies to be safe in a certain regard on the on the streets is that we obey the traffic laws. One of the really interesting things you can do is look at what other countries say about America's traffic laws. And one thing that they do admire America for is everybody, for the most part, unless you're in New York City, uh, for the most part, everybody obeys stop signs and stoplights. Don't you get irritated when you're driving somewhere and their people are not obeying? If I ever come close to committing murder, it is when I am driving 
And there, Jen, Jen is shaking her head and praying right now. When we're driving, and and I'm telling you, if, if I see you do this, I I will have to repent. But uh, because I will not have happy things. When you're driving in construction, and it says merge left, and then people that are possessed by the devil come up the right-hand side and get over in front, meaning nobody in the back moves forward, and they keep cutting people off, and then I don't know who the people are that let them over, but I am not one of those people ever under any circumstance. If you are driving up the right side, as far as I'm concerned, crash into that blinking left arrow and and ruin the rest of your day, hopefully, ruin. So obviously I have lots of sanctification left in my life. And I'm, I, you think I'm joking. Jennifer will tell you I hate that with a ungodly passion. So I shouldn't be laughing. I should be repenting. But, but it's, we have laws and systems put in place that are meant for the flourishing of society. That's what they're meant for. It's obvious that some of the laws that we have in place are arbitrary and meaningless. It's for the sake of somebody having their name attached to legislation, and it just creates bureaucracy. So, be that as it may, I'm supposed to submit to the governing authorities. I'm supposed to pay my taxes. I'm supposed to show honor to whom honor is due. By the way, Peter, who wrote what I just read, was crucified according to church history, upside down by the same Roman government. Paul, in Romans 13, who wrote that, was beheaded by the same Roman government. Do you know why? Think about this. They wrote about this tremendous submission, and yet the government deemed them to not be in submission because they were obedient to God and the mission of the gospel, which ultimately led to that same government killing them. But it's interesting that Paul wrote some of these letters from prison of the government he told you to submit to. That tells me that the ultimate governing thought process for us is God instituted the authority, and for his sake, that's why I obey. Not because I agree with this politician, not because I agree with the senator or the president or the governor, I obey because God instituted that authority, and that's why I do it. I do it, therefore, as unto the Lord, and that helps me lay my head down tonight and sleep without grinding my teeth. Okay. Let's go back to Jesus, and we will finish this up. When Jesus answers, and I said it was a genius answer, We've only discussed the first part of his answer, which is, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he says, and to God the things that are God's. So he started the conversation by saying, whose image is this? And the inscription. That was part of the issue. It was a government that represented an idolatrous commitment to an imperial cult, the worship of Caesar. 
And so when Jesus says, give the Caesar what is Caesar's, the Pharisees are probably going, all right, Jesus has just lost the support of the people. But then he says, and to God, the things that are God's, Jesus rejects the inscription on that coin that subscribes worship to Caesar, and he says, Caesar doesn't get worship. The government doesn't get your adoration. They get your honor. They get your obedience. They do not get your worship. They do not get your trust. Let me say this very carefully. It is easy in a country as wealthy as this one to start voting in ways that take and give through taxation in a way that may be unjust. It's difficult because people talk about voting your interest or voting your pocketbook or voting your wallet. I would say we need to vote our conscience that's informed by a Christian worldview. We've got to be careful even in our hearts trusting in things like Social Security. Which, if you've worked your whole life, you've paid into your whole life, by the time you get there, if it's not available, how are you going to feel? Angry? Frustrated? This is why I think it is dangerous to put too much trust into what the government can do. And we've got to look around government and say, God is my source. God is my hope. God is who I'm looking to. I will honor and submit to the government regardless of who's in charge. I'm going to vote in such a way that isn't just for my economic interest, but I'm going to vote in a way that follows a biblical worldview and pattern as best as I can, because every person that they put up on a ticket is insanely flawed. The fact that you want to be president, in my opinion, disqualifies you. I mean that. If you want to be the president, something's wrong with you. Uh, and it sounds funny, but think about it. If you want to be the most powerful man in the world, something's wrong with you. So, but we got to vote for one. So when, so don't put your hope in these people. Put your hope in God. Honor them. Pray for them. Don't put your hope in them. God is who we put our hope in. Jesus, when he says, <clears throat> give to God what is God's, he's saying this image on this coin means he gets the taxes, but you are an image bearer of God. You bear the image of God. What's stamped on you? What's stamped on you is the image of God. He deserves all the adoration, all the worship, and all the tax paying you do and speed limit following you do. All of that is to the glory of God ultimately anyway. It's all for God. So give to God what is God's, including the paying of these taxes. Do you see the genius of Jesus' answer? The genius is God has got to be the center of the way that we think. Not governments or not anti-government sentiment. 
what's got to be the center is the recognition that the sovereign king of the universe institutes civil governments all over the world, different times, periods, and places in mercy and in judgment for human flourishing and in the outpouring of his wrath for governments that are terrible. Our job as Christians is to give to God what is owed him, which is honor and worship supremely. And I honor God by honoring the leadership of our country and of our state and of our local municipalities and cities that we live in. By submitting to government, you are submitting to God for the Lord's sake. But our ultimate and true submission is to God, who is the supreme, and according to Timothy, the only supreme potentate is the word that Paul uses. Okay. I'm going to stop there. Come back next Sunday to hear about the second level. Jesus gets past. Oh, by the way, let's not forget this. They marveled. This answer hit them. The truth of this answer hit them in such a way that they walked away saying, Oh my gosh. So he gets past the first, the first moment. As we dismiss, um, Ken has, uh, and Daniel, you can grab some as well and pass them out if you haven't done it yet. We're trying to get an idea of, of your all's thoughts on us making a major change to our schedule as a church. And um, we really appreciate your honesty and your opinion. Uh, please don't answer in a way that you think we want to hear. Really like to hear what you genuinely feel, and that is around Sunday school. Which, if you haven't been here, I've got I've gotten like eight responses. So I just want to make sure we give everybody a chance to respond. The new schedule in January would be 9:30 a.m. is Sunday school. Sunday school is split up into various age groups. The Sunday school curriculum is through the Gospel Project. It is a six-year through the Bible curriculum. Six years. Arwen would be 14 when it's over. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a long time. It goes verse by verse, basically, through the entirety of Scripture. And if the fifth graders are talking about Jesus walking on water, the middle schoolers are talking about Jesus walking on water, the kindergartners are talking about Jesus walking on water, and the adult Sunday school is talking about Jesus walking on water. The idea is that you as a family have something to discuss together throughout the week. The ultimate idea of having the Sunday school is so that we put down deep roots into Scripture so that we can withstand in the evil day. Uh, Romans, or excuse me, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates in the Word of God day and night. He is like a tree who is planted by the water, whose leaf will not wither, and whose fruit doesn't quit producing in its season. We want to be like that as a people living in a culture that is increasingly hostile to what we believe. 
1997, the sermon I just preached would have been theoretical, and then we would have all went to Dairy Queen and enjoyed the blissful ignorance of just this wonderful, everything is great, everybody likes us, we're Christians, country. In 2022, things are not the same, and they may continue in that trajectory. I don't know what will happen. We want biblical roots deep so that we know how to get with Jesus on render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So that's the purpose behind the Sunday school. It also creates something necessary for roots to go deep, which is close, smaller group, fellowship, getting to know one another. It is an opportunity to grow with a smaller group of people. So that's the purpose. But if we do that, 9.30 to 10.15-ish will be Sunday school, 10.30 will be the service, and when we, the kids will stay with us throughout the whole service. Except like five years old and under, we will have a room available and something going on there for moms and babies and all of those type of things. So, so there will be something, but the seven-year-olds, the super rambunctious seven- and eight-year-olds, we've got a bunch of those. Um, you know, I've got one myself that, that they will be sitting there listening to boring sermons on Caesar and coins and whatever else. How many of you grew up, though, in church like that? You know, exactly. Like, but it's not, we're not living in the same world. So I, I understand that for some people, this schedule can be like, oh my gosh, I have to have the kid in here with me. So that's why I want to hear from you. We don't want, we want to just hear what your thoughts are. So if you guys want to pass those out, um, yeah, you guys can go ahead and pass those out now. And, and then we, if everybody wants to stand up, we're going to be dismissed. You don't have to put your name on the survey. You can if you want. You do not have to you can, if you think it's a horrible idea, tell us with love and grace that it's a horrible idea. And if you would, if, if you'd say, listen, this would cause me not to come, this would cause me to come to Sunday school and then bail, this would cause me to skip Sunday school and show up at 1030, like, if, if that's how you feel, we'd like to know that. Okay. I think we've passed them all out. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's in it. We thank you for your help and your grace in submitting to it. Lord, we ask that in the areas that are gray over submission to government versus submission to you, Lord, we pray that you would help us, that our attitudes would be defined by the Bible, not our favorite podcast, not our favorite talk show person, but Scripture. Lord, help us to be people of the Word of God first. Lord, we, we pray that you would help us shine like lights. You said in Peter's Gospel that for the Lord's sake we do this, and then it causes people on the outside to see the genuineness of our faith. So, 
Lord, I pray that's what we would be as a church, a place that shines the truth of your word into the communities we live in. Lord, we give you praise. We give you honor. It's in the name of Jesus we do so. Amen. And I am reminded that tonight is prayer at 6 p.m., so please come back this evening for prayer. You are dismissed.